So hello, everybody, and welcome to What Do Scientists Do? It's a show where we talk to a different guest each episode, and they tell us all about their favorite science topics and what they might study or experience working in the world of science. My name is Jessica, and today I'm joined by our very special guest. Could you give us your name and your pronouns, please? Hi, everybody. My name is Julia Bach, and my pronouns are she, her. And Julia, what kind of scientist are you? Yeah, so I would consider myself kind of a mix between a marine biologist or ecologist and an environmental scientist, because I mainly research seabirds, but I also use them as a tool to monitor the marine environment um, for things like plastic pollution. Cool. So tell me more about that. What kinds of questions are you trying to get the answers to? Yeah, so I research Arctic seabirds, where I mainly focus on if seabirds are eating plastic pollution, and if so, how much plastic are they eating and what types of plastic are they eating? And I work with a lot of different seabird species. So I also look at how plastic pollution differs between different birds and why this may be. And have you found anything out so far in your research? Yeah, so I would say that in general, plastic pollution is extremely variable. Um, so a lot of different birds ingest plastic in the Arctic. Um, we looked at a lot of different ones and about 53% of the species that have been examined so far for plastic pollution in the Arctic do contain it to some degree. Um, and that amount differs depending on the kind of bird you are. So if you're a bird that flies above the water and feeds on the surface with fish, you might have more plastics than a bird that dives under the water and chases after their specific prey. And this is mostly because plastics tend to float on the ocean surface and eventually sink to the bottom. But in the middle of the water column, there's a little bit less. So if you're the kind of bird that likes to chase after a fish, um, you're less likely to ingest all of that plastic on the surface than a bird that's flying above and dives into the surface to get your food. That makes sense. So knowing all of this, what are some things that we would maybe be able to do in order to stop all this plastic pollution from getting into birds? Yeah, there's... There's so many different, um, different proposed solutions and different even small acts that you can do. Um, things like decreasing your use of single-use plastics, like switching out bottled water for a reusable bottle or using reusable bags, or maybe you know, bringing cutlery with you instead of using the cutlery that comes with most takeout containers. You can also ensure that you're recycling properly and participating in things like beach cleanups is a really great way to see the plastic pollution in the environment and um, help kind of curve that. But I would say to really make a difference, we really need systematic change. Part of the research I'm doing is in order to inform us on where the plastic pollution is in the environment so we can create policies to change the system. Um, a really great thing that locals can do is if you reach out to your lo local government, either by writing letters or requesting in-person meetings to discuss the plastic pollution problem, and then you show that you're, you show your local government that plastic pollution is a problem that your community cares about. And this can actually help create change at that small scale, such as municipal bylaws and reduction of plastic pollution. Well, those all sound like very good recommendations, both for us to do ourselves and for us to do as a community. You mentioned the Arctic. Is that where you spend most of your time right now? Yeah, so uh, at the moment, my I'm doing I'm currently working on my PhD thesis, and my main kind of goal is to look at plastic pollution in seabirds in the Arctic, 
both where the plastics are in the bird's body and then how the birds might be moving those plastics around. Birds are migratory, so they don't stay in the Arctic all year. So they may actually be migrating more south and then picking up plastics and bringing them back into the Arctic. So I'm trying to look at that with my research. So one of the things that I plan to do uh, is look at bird poop. Um, so basically, when birds eat plastics, sometimes they get accumulated in their stomach, but they are able to excrete some plastics. And being able to quantify that would help us know how much plastics are being deposited at things like seabird colonies. Is there a lot more plastic in that area because the birds are pooping it out? Um, so I plan to look at bird poop as a part of my thesis to see what, what that mechanism looks like. That's very cool. I never thought about that as a possibility that birds could be taking plastic to some of these places that maybe don't have a lot of people around and maybe don't have that much plastic, but they could actually be moving it around places. I never even considered that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you've done all this stuff with birds. How did you know that you wanted to study birds and pollution? Yeah, so this was a, a, it's been a long adventure and I've started out in a lot of different areas. Um, so when I first started my undergraduate degree uh, at Dalhousie University, I joined the environmental science program knowing I cared about the environment. Coming from a background where, you know, my parents always taught me not to litter, I did volunteer on a lot of beach cleanups when I was younger. And I knew I cared about the environment, but I wasn't sure what piece of it made me the most passionate. Um, so I started my undergrad degree by doing a research position in an entomology lab at the agricultural campus. So I actually studied bees and beetles and looked at how um, pollution rates differ between different species um, and how pollination, you know, in blueberry fields might be different depending on the bumblebees or honeybees. And it was a really exciting uh, experience and I really loved it. But I said, I can't try one thing and like move my life that way. I should, I should really broaden my horizons. So a year later, I worked um, as an ornithologist in a bird lab studying tree swallows, which are a terrestrial bird. They're very beautiful. The males are this nice blue color. Um, and I looked at them and we were looking at how like anthropogenic or human noise may impact the way that the baby birds are able to communicate. And that was a really fun project too. I got to handle a lot of little tiny, tiny birds. And that's when I fell in love with the bird aspect. But um, when I remembered all of the times I've worked on plastic pollution in terms of cleanups, and that was a, around the same time that those pictures were coming out on the internet of, you know, those albatrosses with big amounts of plastic in their stomach. And so I, I said to the woman I worked with, I would really like to focus on the sea. Um, and so then I started working on seabirds, and then it was shortly thereafter that I ended up being invited to be a part of a plastic pollution project. And I haven't looked back since. I did a master's in it, I'm doing a PhD in it now. It's my whole life. <laughs> cool. So you did a bunch of different things, but the baby birds and the plastic pollution stuff really kind of stole your heart, it seems. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned the word ornithologist. What is that? Yeah, so that is a person that studies birds. Um, so that's essentially what, like, yeah, so it's a person that studies birds, and that's what I started out as. And I would consider myself still a sort of ornithologist today. I do still study birds, but I'm definitely more focused on how birds can help us understand the environment from an environmental science perspective. Cool. So you're kind of part ornithologist, part environmental scientist. 
like everything in science, nothing's nothing's purely off in one category. Everything's all related to each other. But Exactly. And I think that's the best thing about science, too, is that all of the different topics are all related and it gives you a lot of unique opportunities to collaborate with a lot of very different people. Cool. So you mentioned all these cool things you've done with birds. Do you have a favorite science thing that you've ever done? Oh, that is a really tough question. I would say that it's a tie between the research that I recently conducted in Iceland or my time living on a boat in, a, in the Canadian Arctic or my time living on a remote research island in Nova Scotia. All three were really exciting things. Um, so, for example, this summer I traveled to Iceland for my PhD research. And for this work, um, I used small tracking devices and I put them on the legs of a bird called a black-legged kittiwake, which is a type of gull that's actually threatened all across Europe. Most populations in that region are in decline. But in Canada, they, they seem to be doing okay. And so the overarching goal of my project is to look at how some of these threats to these birds differ between the Atlantic birds here in America and then the Atlantic birds in Europe. And this includes plastic pollution. So basically what I aim to do is I'm going to use this information from the tracking devices to see where the birds might go during their migration when they leave the Arctic and look at if that impacts the amount of plastic pollution that they have in their in their bodies. Cool. Um, I was actually also in Iceland very recently, which is very funny, but um, I was going to ask if you did anything with puffins ever. Yes. Yeah. The, the puffins in Iceland are an amazing experience. So I actually got to work with them this year, both with adults and babies. Um, so in between my research on the gulls, I volunteered as a research assistant on an island called Flate in Iceland. Um, and this island is, it's mostly uninhabited except for two farmers that live there um, throughout the year. But during the summer, it becomes kind of like a tourism hotspot. There's a little hotel, you can take a ferry there for the day, or you can stay overnight. And there's a puffin colony on the island, as well as a few different puffin colonies in adjacent islands. And so I was able to work with those. Um, they're really, really cute. And they're just as cute as you think they are looking at the pictures. But they are, they're very feisty birds. Um, the way that you catch a puffin is, so we wear gloves and, you know, protective gear. But we put our hand in their burrow because they actually live under the ground. So they dig a hole in the ground and that's where they put their eggs. So we have to crawl our hands in there and kind of coax them out so that they bite us. And then we use that to kind of bring them out. Um, so it's a it's an interesting experience. They're very, you know, they're small, but they're very dense and they've got a lot of power. That's so fun. I'm actually overjoyed. I wasn't expecting you to say that you actually had worked with puffins. That was just me throwing that out there. But I love that you got the chance to do that. Tell me about your time on this remote research island off Nova Scotia. Yeah, so this was what I did um, for my honors thesis back in my undergraduate degree. Um, so I lived on a remote island called Country Island. It's off of Guysboro in Nova Scotia. And it's a very small island. It's about one square kilometer. And it's uninhabited, but it actually used to be inhabited by a lighthouse keeper. So there's a lighthouse on the island, as well as a tiny little lighthouse shed, which I think has since fallen. Um, the time we were there, we were not able to go into these buildings because they're, they're very old. Um, so what we did is we brought these semi-permanent tents um, with like a wooden board and then a tent on top. And we lived on the island for three months. Um, so we had food shipped out to us every three to four weeks from the Canadian Coast Guard. 
Um, and we basically lived on this island, which is a huge seabird nesting uh, area for a lot of different species, like common terns and arctic terns, as well as the endangered roseate tern. Um, and then there's also birds like common eiders, which are a type of duck, and uh, storm petrels as well. So leeches, storm petrels, which also burrow under the ground. Um, so it's a nice bird hotspot. The year that I was there, we saw 96 different bird species. Um, and we spent the summer researching a lot of different things about these birds, mostly about their productivity. You know, are the birds having babies? How many babies are they having? Are their babies surviving to be able to fly? And questions like that. We looked at what they were eating. Um, and it involved a lot of measuring uh, cute little baby birds, which was really exciting. Lots of baby birds. That seems yes. to be the theme here is that you get to get up close to lots of baby birds that you probably wouldn't get to get that close to otherwise. Exactly. Very cool. And you mentioned something else. You mentioned the boat, right? Yeah, yeah. So I also spent one month living on a Canadian Coast Guard ship, the Amundsen, which is a Coast Guard icebreaker that actually hosts scientists and operates a lot of scientific research in the summer. Um, so it, it's a really interesting ship. It has 12 laboratories on the ship and a lot of great scientific research equipment. And so every summer, there's a big team of scientists on the boat, as well as a team of Coast Guard staff. And a lot of research gets done on the ship. So there are people who are researching sharks. There are people who are researching little microbes and phytoplankton. There are people who are researching sea ice. And my role on the ship was an at-sea seabird observer. So this meant that I stood on the bridge or the top of the ship um, where the captain is. And I basically counted and identified every single bird that I saw as the ship traveled all the way around the Canadian Arctic. So we mostly stayed in Baffin Bay between the Canadian Arctic and Greenland, and we kind of zigzagged across those waters. And it was a really exciting experience, not just because of the seabirds, I got to see thousands of those, but also I got to see other really cool marine mammals like whales and polar bears. And um, our goal is to map the distribution of these birds and the marine mammals to better understand what areas are really important for birds, what areas aren't, which can help us when we're planning future marine management, like conservation areas or marine traffic routes or even oil spill response strategies. If we know where the birds are when there's an oil spill, we can know better how we can help manage that. How long did you have to stand there looking for birds at a time? Yeah, so it, it was a lot of hours. It depended. Um, we do have a limit because at, at some point, if you're watching birds for too long, you may start to get inaccurate with your identification. So we would always take breaks. But I would say like during a day, I would probably do 10 hour days with breaks in between, you know, for meals and stuff like that. That's so much longer than I thought that you were going to say. But I mean, if you love birds. If you love dream, birds. Right? Exactly. And, you know, you, I am standing in one spot looking for hours, but I'm looking at beautiful Arctic mountainscapes and uh, sea ice and birds flying everywhere. And, you know, sometimes we see a seal or a walrus or, you know, a northern bottlenose whale. And that alone is just super exciting. And I like being, you know, right there to see it all. That's super cool. I love mm -hmm. all of that. Do you have any advice for somebody who might be equally interested in becoming um, an environmental scientist or a biologist or even specifically an ornithologist? Yeah, I would say the best advice is to get involved. Whether you if, can find a part-time job in the summer or a full-time job in the summer that allows you to explore one of these areas throughout your school 
you can do that. But also there are so many different projects that you can volunteer for. Ornithologists are always looking for volunteers to help um, with certain things. Um, And there's a lot of different ways you can get involved that don't require a lot of time commitment either. For example, we have something called the Christmas bird count every year around Christmas time where you can go and survey birds within your community. Pretty much every community has a group that does this. Um, And that's something that you can get involved in for free. And it's just a one-time thing, but you can meet some really great ornithologists doing that. And when you do this, um, you'll meet and make those connections that maybe you'll be able to find a volunteer opportunity from that. That's very cool. I didn't know about the Christmas bird count. That will actually probably line up really well with the timing of this episode when it comes out. So maybe we can look into Christmas bird counts around the Halifax area and Nova Scotia, and maybe I'll post some links to where you can get involved with those. Um, But that sounds like it would be a very fun opportunity. Is there a reason that they happen at Christmas? Um, I'm not actually sure. Um, I'm not actually sure why. I think it's uh, probably, I don't want to say this and be incorrect, but I I do know that uh, in general, the bird counts uh, are lower around the wintertime because most people go out birding in the summer and stuff. So it's another way to get people out and involved when they have some extra free time, um, when they're maybe taking vacation and stuff, to get involved, get in nature, and also collect some important information on bird distribution on a time where we may not have as much data. This year, I believe it's from December 14th to January 5th. Um, So it's a good wide window. um, And you can look for different uh, organizations in your area. You can just, I think they have like a map of where you can go and you can just figure out which one's closest to you. Cool. Well, Thank you so much for joining me today, Julia. This was excellent. I learned so many things. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we finish up? Um, I don't know. I think that's it. I think mostly if you care um, about nature or birds, just get involved in any way. Um, there's a lot of different nonprofit organizations in almost every area that that do um, some form of work on birds, whether it's counting them, whether it's weighing them and measuring them. Or there's a lot of other different activities. And if you just, if you're interested, go volunteer for a day. If you don't like it, you can try something new. But um, those little volunteering stints are what allowed me to get as far as I did today. And can we find you on Twitter? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at at Julia Ellen Bach. Cool. And I will put that in the description of this episode as well. Julia is super active on Twitter. And there are some really good pictures of some baby birds, among other things on her Twitter. So it's a great place to follow if you want to be kept up to date on all the bird news. Yes. I also retweet a lot of different volunteering and job opportunities. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was very cool. Thank you for having me. And as always, a big, big thank you to everybody listening. Do you have a question that you'd like answered by an expert? Send us an email or a voice recording at whatdoscientistsdo at superstaff.ca. For more science fun, you can also follow us on social media at scientistsdopod on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Bye for now! This show was made by Supernova at Dalhousie University, a network member of Actua. For more information on our summer camps, workshops, and more, visit supernova.dal.ca.